Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Saturday 27th of April, Justin Moat taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Justin looks at the doctrine of Christ and the cross. Justin is the former head of the Northwest Partnership Ministry Trainee Course and a regular speaker on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. I'm going to just tell you a few things about the doctrine of Christ, and I'll try and do this uh, really uh, quickly. The first is picking up what we said earlier. It was purpose before creation. Before the foundation of the world, God had ordained that the cross was going to happen. In other words, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, it did not take him by surprise. It wasn't that suddenly he thought, oh, well, that was a good idea and it hasn't worked very well, so I've got to come up with a replacement plan. It was never that. It was... It was purposed before the foundation of the world. God was not a last-minute person. So Revelation 13, 8 says that the Lamb was slain from the creation of the world. That means it was so certain it could have been said to have happened before it happened. The only illustration I can think of that I think makes any sense is, can anyone tell me what the most famous football line of commentary is ever? So even though those of us who weren't alive, well, I was alive, I remember watching it, but for those of you who weren't alive, even you know the most famous piece of football commentary is, there are some people on the pitch, they think it's all over, it is now. Is that right? Jeff Hurst, when he scored that third goal, fourth goal, his hat-trick goal, when he scored that goal, there were some people on the pitch, they think it's all over. And Kenneth Walsenholm commentating says, it is now, but it wasn't, because they restarted. But it was so certain with England 4-2 up with only a few seconds to go, it was so certain he could say, it's as if it had happened. The cross is so certain that... John can write in Revelation that the lamb was slain from before the foundation of the world. It did not take God by surprise, our rebellion and sin. And so what did God do? Well, he gives us all those foreshadows uh, in the Old Testament. I've just put two of them down. There are loads others that you could put uh, down. But probably the biggest two are the Passover and the Day of Atonement. You cannot miss, when you read the Gospels, that you are meant to see Jesus as fulfilling the Passover. Let me just show you one example of that from Mark's Gospel. Turn to Mark chapter 14, and you can't miss it. Mark 14. Sorry, we've done a lot of dotting around. I'll read it, the relevant verses. And see if you can work out what Mark is trying to tell you by the use of repetitive language. Mark 14 and verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There's a clue. 
Now, you may not know anything about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but if I tell you it's the week around Passover, that might help. When it was customary to sacrifice, and Mark tells us, to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and, and a man carrying uh, a pot uh, of water will meet you, follow him, say to the owner of the house that he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished, ready, make preparations there. So the disciples left, went into the city, found it just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. You spot the repeated phrase? You can't miss it, can you? Four times in three verses, Mark tells you that what's happening around this point of Jesus' life, as he's about to go and die in Jerusalem, it's Passover. Why does he do that? He wants you to be thinking, what was the significance of the Passover? Well, it was an annual celebration after the week of unleavened bread. Where will I find all the information about that? Well, I'll go back and read it in Exodus chapter 12. And it will tell me there that in place of the firstborn son who would die, God provides a lamb to die in the place so that when he goes through the land, he will pass over the houses where the Passover lamb has been slaughtered. He'll pass over and not bring the judgment that the people in Israel and Egypt deserve. The day of atonement. The word atonement is used a number of times in the New Testament. It's a word that was made up by a chap called John Wycliffe. He was the first to translate the Bible into English. When he came across the word in the Hebrew in Leviticus 16, he didn't know how to translate it, so he made it up. And it means literally what it says on the tin. Atonement means at one make. It's the provision God made for how he, a holy God, could be at one with sinful Israel. Israel was jolly sinful at Leviticus 16. They'd just built a golden calf. How could a holy God be at one with them? Well, the Day of Atonement describes it and explains it. Two goats would die. The first goat would die in the temple, or the, ta the tabernacle, then the temple, to say that a life had to be given for sinful Israel. And the second goat, and you can go and see Holman Hunt's uh, famous painting of it in the Lady Lever Art Gallery on the Wirral, if you want to. Uh, the second goat is called the scapegoat. The word's in our language now. The second goat, the scapegoat, has the sins of Israel laid symbolically on it. Confess the sins of Israel. And the goat is then led out into the desert to symbolise that sin must be taken away from the presence of a holy God. So a holy God demands a life to be given, and a holy God needs sin to be taken away. Can you see that? That so helps you understand the death of Jesus. What's happening when Jesus dies on the cross is a life is being given for you and me. What happens when Jesus dies on the cross? Our sins are being taken away so that a holy God can live. Someone was saying to me over coffee, isn't it a remarkable, it was you brother, isn't it a remarkable thing 
that God by his spirit can live inside me. How can he do that? Only because I am at one with God as a result of what Jesus has done, that my sin has been taken away, my sin has been paid for, and so a holy God, do you know what he looks on me today? He looks on me and sees Jesus. And so he can live in me. Well, I think that's... But, but, you need... Sorry. But you need... The, that's, the Old Testament is going to help you understand all that. And the more you read of it, the more your breath will be blown away by it. Always the plan foretold through the Old Testament. Well, we've mentioned that a few times already, haven't we? But uh, whether it was in the Garden of Eden, where the promise, well, it's the first beginning of the promise of the cross, isn't it? The promise of the, what has God promised to Adam and Eve? A serpent crusher. And right through the Old Testament, Time and time again, you're being told, this is, what, this is what God is going to do. You can't miss, it's central to the Gospels. The cross is right at every point, and then it's proclaimed by the apostles, and I won't say anything, it's going to be gloried in, in eternity. Um, did you know that the word lamb comes 42 times in the New Testament? And 38 of them are in the book of Revelation. In other words, wherever you open the book of the Revelation, there is the Lamb. You're never, ever in eternity going to be able to forget the Lamb. That's what he looks like. There's that great, the verses down there in Revelation 5. It's, it's, um, it's when John sees, he's been weeping. No one can open a scroll that unfolds all of human history. And he's told not to weep, but he's told the Lion of Judah has won a great victory. And you're expecting John to turn and see Aslan and hear the big roar. And he turns and sees a dead sheep. Because the Lamb, looking as if it had been slain, is what you're going to see for all eternity. It's what you're going to worship forever and ever and ever. So what does the cross achieve? Well, it achieves a number of things. Let me just mention some of these for you. What does it achieve for God? Well, that seems odd, doesn't it? Well, it reveals the kind of God he is. At the cross, you most clearly see what God is like. For example, you see love. You will see love no more clearly than Jesus dying on a cross. You'll see justice. Sin must be paid for. It must be dealt with. You don't want to live in a world where there's a God who does not sort out justice, do you? How horrific would that be? You want justice. And you see a God of justice most clearly at the cross. You see what a wise God he is. The world looks at the world looks at the cross and thinks it's foolishness. But we look at the cross 
and we see it as the wisdom of God. Why? Because it's at the cross that God can make anyone, however clever or not they are, can make them right with himself. You do not need to be a genius to understand the gospel. A two-year-old child can do it. Some of you may have even been young children. When you, who, who became a Christian would say before they were ten? There you are. Well, loads of you. Let me say at the age of ten you were not that intellectually bright. With all loving respect. <laughs> and some of us haven't pulled it off ever since. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> But to, but to those of us in Christ, the mature, we see the wisdom of God. In the cross, you see the power of God. Now, I know that you are all lovers of God's spirit and love to see God's spirit at work and praise God every time you do. But do you want me to show you the most powerful work that's ever happened since creation? Andy Brownlee becoming Christian. Because the God who said, let there be light, manifested his spirit in his life and turned him from death to life, from darkness to light, from lostness to being found, from being no hope to having hope. That is most wonderful power. Friends, you will never see power like that. However powerful you see God at work, there is no greater power after the creation, according to Paul, after the creation, to the someone being newly created. That is powerful stuff. Just look. Why don't you have a little look around? Have a look around. What an odd lot you are. <laughs> In the nicest way. Diverse, different, different colours, different genders, different ages. And God's brought us all to life. Isn't that powerful? There is no power like that. It demonstrates his power. If you ever want to doubt, if you ever doubt the power of God, read the cross. What does it achieve for us? Well, it achieves rescue from God's wrath. That's wonderful, isn't it? I never need to be afraid of God. Isn't that wonderful? In fact, it's reconciled me to him. It's made me friends with him. Is that not the most awesome thing in the world? I am friends with the creator of the universe. Have you ever gone out, have you ever gone out on a, it wasn't last night, but have you ever gone out on a clear night? You don't get them in Manchester. Have you ever been out on a clear night in the middle of the country somewhere and, and, there's, no, and there's no neon lights around and it's just breathtaking stars in the sky and you look up and you think this is a big place and think the God who created that with a word that greatest throwaway line ever in Genesis 1 he made the stars also (laughs) that's a breathtaking line isn't it he made the stars also by a word he did that and he's now friends with you all done by the cross And of course, as we said earlier, it's given you now access to God. There's some references there for you to look up. It's given you access to God. It means that you are now in his presence, with his presence in you. You are at peace with God. 
What does the cross achieve for Satan? Well, his defeat that was promised in the garden of the serpent crusher, Jesus has defeated the devil. And one day, the devil will be completely eradicated. Because the closest verse to the verse in Genesis 3.15 about Satan's being crushed is actually not used about Jesus and his death. It's used about us. Where Paul writes in Romans 16.20, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. We who are in Christ, because of what Jesus has done, are going to be involved in the final and eternal overthrow, eradication. So his, his, his defeat, delivered at the cross, will be consummated at the end. So resist it. Resist him. Have nothing to do with him. Well, how does, that, how does the cross apply? Well, do you know, at every point in the Christian life, the New Testament uses the cross as a model for us. So it tells us first it's about a, com- a community that we join. We become part of a people because of the cross. Now, I'm one of four, and I had no choice in my siblings. I'd have loved to have been able to, but I didn't. They just happen to pitch up. And I have no choice about who my brothers and sisters are. You are they, and the cross has joined us together. It's joined us so that in Ephesians we actually are one new humanity. And amazingly, as a humanity, we proclaim the manifold wisdom of God in the heavenly realms for all eternity. The cross, it's the motivation to serve. Have you ever woken up on a Monday morning and thought, I'm not sure I want to be a Christian this morning? Or have I, am I the only person who's ever thought that? <laughs> you had a weak moment, you thought, I don't really want to get up and live for Jesus today. What do you do? I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. Just rehearse the cross. What's Isaac Watts' famous line at the fourth verse of When I Survey? I don't know what political party you're part of, but a good friend of mine's um, the uh, Lib Dem MP for uh, Kendall and South Lakes. He was leader of the Liberal Democrats until just after the last election. And he resigned, a Christian man, he resigned because he acknowledged he told lies during the election campaign. I think Tim Farron's repentance speech in resignation was the closest I've ever heard a public figure apologise to the community for lying. And how did he finish his speech, remember? Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. And if he was standing here now and invite him sometime to come and speak, he's, he's a fine speaker, a, a, a 
genuinely evangelical, Bible-loving Christian man, and he would say, I felt compelled by the love of God that I had to put him number one. The cross provides the motivation we need. When I survey the wondrous cross, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, it provides the attitude for us to live for one another. Paul writes that lovely hymn in Philippians chapter 2, saying, have this mind amongst you, that of Christ. And what was Christ's mind? Leaving glory and becoming in the appearance of man, and in the appearance as a man, he goes to the cross. That's the attitude. Other person-centeredness. And so it becomes the model then we copy as we love one another. How do we love one another? We love self-givingly as Jesus loved us, as he gave himself. As we give money. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, encouraging them to give, tells them what? Jesus, rich, became poor for our sake, gave up everything. So we share our possessions with one another. That should be, the John should have a capital there. We share our possessions with one another, as we saw the early church doing. And for those of us who are married, we love our wives. What's the model that Paul gives for us husbands for how we love our wives? It's the cross. And it tells us that the way we're going to experience life will be also through suffering like Jesus. And if Jesus suffered at the cross, well, that's the way discipleship's going to be for you and me too.